Book five, chapters fifteen through eighteen of On War, volumes two and three, by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter fifteen, base of operations. If an army acts out on any expedition, whether it be to attack the enemy and his theatre of war, or to take post on its own frontier, it continues in a state of necessary dependence on the sources from which it draws its subsistence and reinforcements, and must maintain its communication with them, as they are the conditions of its existence and preservation. This dependence increases in intensity and extent in proportion to the size of the army. But now it is neither possible nor requisite that the army should continue in direct communication with the whole of its own country. It is sufficient if it does so with that portion immediately in its rear, and which is consequently covered by its position. In this portion of the country, then, as far as necessary, special depots of provisions are formed, and arrangements are made for regularly forwarding reinforcements and supplies. This strip of territory is therefore the foundation of the army, and of all its undertakings, and the two must be regarded as forming, in connection, only one whole, if the supplies for their greater security are lodged in fortified places, the idea of a base becomes more distinct, but the idea does not originate in any arrangement of that kind, and, in a number of cases, no such arrangement is made. But a portion of the enemy's territory may also become a base for our army, or at least form part of it, for when an army penetrates into an enemy's land, a number of its wants are supplied from that part of the country which is taken possession of but it is then a necessary condition that we are completely masters of this portion of territory, that is, certain of our orders being obeyed within its limits. This certainty, however, seldom extends beyond the reach of our ability to keep the inhabitants in awe by small garrisons and detachments moving about from place to place, and that is not very far in general. The consequence is that in the enemy's country the part of territory from which we can draw supplies is seldom of sufficient extent to furnish all the supplies we require, and we must therefore still depend on our own land for much. And this brings us back again to the importance of that part of our territory immediately in rear of our army as an indispensable portion of our base. The wants of an army may be divided into two classes, first those which every cultivated country can furnish, and next those which can only be obtained from those localities where they are produced. The first are chiefly provisions, the second the means of keeping an army complete in every way. The first can therefore be obtained in the enemy's country, the second as a rule can only be furnished by our own country, for example men, arms, and almost all munitions of war. Although there are exceptions to this classification in certain cases, still they are few and trifling, and the distinction we have drawn is of standing importance, and proves again that the communication with our own country is indispensable. Depots of provision and forage are generally formed in open towns, both in the enemy's and in our own country, because there are not as many fortresses as would be required for these bulky stores continually being consumed, and wanted sometimes here, sometimes there, and also because their loss is much easier to replace. On the other hand, stores to keep the army complete, such as arms, munitions of war, and articles of equipment, are never lodged in open places in the vicinity of the theatre of war, if it can be avoided, but are rather bought from a distance, and in the enemy's country never stored anywhere but in fortresses. From this point again, it may be inferred that the base is of more importance in relation to supplies intended to refit an army 
than in relation to provisions for food. Now, the more means of each kind are collected together in great magazines before being brought into use, the more, therefore, all separate streams unite into great reservoirs, so much the more may these be regarded as taking the place of the whole country, and so much more will the conception of a base fix itself upon these great depots of supply. But this must never go so far that any such place becomes looked upon as constituting a base in itself alone. If these sources of supply and refitment are abundant, that is, if the tracts of territory are wide and rich, if the stores are collected in great depots to be more speedily brought into use, if these depots are covered in a military sense, in one way or another, if they are in close proximity to the army and accessible by good roads, if they extend along a considerable width in the rear of the army, or surround it in part as well, then follows a greater vitality for the army, as well as a greater freedom in its movements. Attempts have been made to sum up all the advantages which an army derives from being so situated in one single conception, that is, the extent of the base of operations. By the relation which this base bears to the object of the undertakings, by the angle which its extremities make with this object, open bracket, supposed as a point, close bracket, it has been attempted to express the whole sum of the advantages and disadvantages which accrue to an army from the position and nature of its source of supply and equipment. But it is plain this elegant piece of geometrical refinement is merely a play of fancy, as it is founded on a series of substitutions which must all be made at the expense of truth. As we have seen, the base of an army is a triple formation in connection with the situation in which the army is placed, the resources of the country adjacent to the position of the army, the depots of stores which have been made at particular points, and the province from which these stores are derived or collected. These three things are separated in space and cannot be collected into one whole, and least of all can we substitute for them a line, which is to represent the width of the base, a line, which is generally imagined in a manner perfectly arbitrary, either from one fortress to another, or from one capital of a province to another, or along a political boundary of a country. Neither can we determine precisely the mutual relation of these three steps in the formation of a base, for in reality they blend themselves with each other always more or less. In one case, the surrounding country affords largely the means of refitting an army with things which otherwise could only be obtained from a long distance. In another case, we are obliged to get even food from a long distance. Sometimes the nearest fortresses are great arsenals, ports, or commercial cities, which contain all the military resources of a whole state. Sometimes they are nothing but old, feeble ramparts, hardly sufficient for their own defence. The consequence is that all deductions from the length of the base of operations and its angles, and the whole theory of war founded on these data, as far as its geometrical phase, have never met with any attention in real war, and in theory they have only caused wrong tendencies. But as the basis of this chain of reasoning is a truth, and only the conclusions drawn are false, this same view will easily and frequently thrust itself forward again. We think, therefore, that we cannot go beyond acknowledging generally the influence of a base on military enterprises, that at the same time there are no means of framing out of this maxim any serviceable rules, but a few abstract ideas. But that in each separate case, the whole of the things which have been specified must be kept in view together. When once arrangements are made within a certain radius to provide the means of subsisting an army and keeping it complete in every respect, and with a view to operations in a certain direction, then, even in our own country, 
this district is only to be regarded as the base of the army and as any alteration of a base requires time and labour therefore an army cannot change its base every day even in its own country and this again limits it more or less in the direction of its operations if then in operating against an enemy's country we take the whole line of our frontier where it forms a boundary between the two countries as our base we may do so in a general sense in so far that we might make those preparations which constitute a base anywhere on that frontier but it will not be a base at any moment if preparations have not already been made when the russian army retreated before the french in eighteen twelve at the beginning of the campaign the whole of russia might have been considered as its base the more so because the vast extent of the country offered the army abundance of space in any direction it might select this is no illusory notion as it was actually realized at a subsequent time when other russian armies from different quarters entered the field but still at every period throughout the campaign the base of the russian army was not so extensive it was principally confined to the road on which the whole train of transport to and from their army was organized this limitation prevented the russian army for instance from making the further retreat which became necessary after the three days fighting at smolensk in any direction but that of moscow and so hindered their turning suddenly in the direction of kaluga as was proposed in order to draw the enemy away from moscow such a change of direction could only have been possible by having been prepared for long beforehand we have said that the dependence on the base increases in intensity and extent with the size of the army which is easy to understand an army is like a tree from the ground out of which it grows it draws its nourishment if it is small it can easily be transplanted but this becomes more difficult as it increases in size a small body of troops has also its channels from which it draws the sustenance of life but it strikes root easily where it happens to be not so a large army when therefore we talk of the influence of the base of operations on an army the dimensions of the army must always serve as the scale by which to measure the magnitude of that influence further it is consistent with the nature of things that for the immediate wants of the present hour the subsistence is the main point but for the general efficiency of the army through a long period of time the refitment and recruitment are the more important because the latter can only be done from particular sources while the former may be obtained in many ways this again defines still more distinctly the influence of the base on the operations of the army however great that influence may be we must never forget that it belongs to those things which can only show a decisive effect after some considerable time and that therefore the question always remains what will happen in that time the value of a base of operations will seldom determine the choice of an undertaking in the first instance mere difficulties which may present themselves in this respect must be put side by side and compared with other means actually at our command obstacles of this nature often vanish before the force of decisive victories end of chapter fifteen chapter sixteen lines of communication the roads which lead from the position of an army to those points in its rear where its depots of supply and means of recruiting and refitting its forces are principally united and which it also in all ordinary cases chooses for its retreat have a double signification in the first place they are its lines of communication for the constant nourishment of the combatant force and next they are roads of retreat we have said in the preceding chapter that although according to the present system of subsistence an army is chiefly fed from the district in which it is operating it must still be looked upon as forming a whole with its base 
the lines of communication belong to this whole. They form the connection between the army and its base, and are to be considered as so many great vital arteries. Supplies of every kind, convoys of munitions, detachments moving backwards and forwards, posts, orderlies, hospitals, depots, reserves of stores, agents of administration, all these objects are constantly making use of these roads, and the total value of these services is of the utmost importance to the army. These great channels of life must therefore neither be permanently severed, nor must they be of too great length, or beset with difficulties, because there is always a loss of strength on a long road, which tends to weaken the condition of an army. By their second purpose, that is, as lines of retreat, they constitute, in a real sense, the strategic rear of the army. For both purposes, the value of these roads depends on their length, their number, their situation, that is, their general direction, and their direction specially as regards the army, their nature as roads, difficulties of ground, the political relations and feeling of local population, and lastly, on the protection they derive from fortresses or natural obstacles in the country. But all the roads which lead from the point occupied by an army to its sources of existence and power are not on that account necessarily lines of communication for that army. They may, no doubt, be used for that purpose and may be considered as supplementary of the system of communication, but that system is confined to the lines regularly prepared for the purpose. Only those roads on which magazines, hospitals, stations, posts for dispatches and letters are organised under commandants with police and garrisons can be looked upon as real lines of communication. But here a very important difference between our own and the enemy's army makes its appearance, one which is often overlooked. An army, even in its own country, has its prepared lines of communication, but it is not completely limited to them, and can, in case of need, change its line, taking some other which presents itself, for it is everywhere at home, has officials in authority, and the friendly feeling of the people. Therefore, although other roads may not be as good as those first selected, there is nothing to prevent their being used and the use of them is not to be regarded as impossible in case the army is turned and obliged to change its front. An army in an enemy's country, on the contrary, can as a rule only look upon those roads as lines of communication upon which it has advanced, and hence arises through small and almost invisible causes a great difference in operating. The army in the enemy's country takes under its protection the organisation which, as it advances, it necessarily introduces to form its lines of communication, and in general, insomuch as terror and the presence of an enemy's army in the country invests these measures in the eyes of the inhabitants with all the weight of unalterable necessity, the inhabitants may even be brought to regard them as an alleviation of the evils inseparable from war. Small garrisons left behind in different places support and maintain this system, but if these commissaries, commandants of stations, police, field posts, and the rest of the apparatus of administration were sent to some distant road upon which the army had not been seen, the inhabitants would look upon such measures as a burden which they would gladly get rid of, and if the most complete defeats and catastrophes had not previously spread terror throughout the land, the probability is that these functionaries would be treated as enemies and driven away with very rough usage. Therefore, in the first place, it would be necessary to establish garrisons to subjugate the new line, and these garrisons would require to be of more than ordinary strength, and still there would always be a danger of the inhabitants rising and attempting to overpower them. 
in short an army marching into an enemy's country is destitute of the mechanism through which obedience is rendered it has to institute its officials in their places which can only be done by a strong hand and this cannot be effected thoroughly without sacrifices and difficulties nor is it the work of a moment from this it follows that a change of the system of communication is much less easy of accomplishment in an enemy's country than in our own where it is at very least possible and it also follows that an army is more restricted in its movements and must be much more sensitive about any demonstrations against its communications but the choice and organization of lines of communication is from the very commencement subject also to a number of conditions by which it is restricted not only must they be in a general sense good high roads but they will be more serviceable the wider they are the more populous and wealthy towns they pass through the more strong places there are which afford them protection rivers also as means of water communication and bridges as points of passage have a decisive weight in the choice it follows from this that the situation of a line of communication and consequently the road by which an army proceeds to commence the offensive is only a matter of free choice up to a certain point its situation being dependent on certain geographical relations all the foregoing circumstances taken together determine the strength or weakness of the communication of an army with its base and this result compared with one similarly obtained with regard to the enemy's communications decides which of the two opponents is in a position to operate against the other's lines of communication or to cut off his retreat that is in technical language to turn him setting aside all considerations of moral or physical superiority that party can only effectually accomplish this whose communications are the strongest of the two for otherwise the enemy saves himself in the shortest mode by a counterstroke now this turning can by reason of the double signification of these lines have also two purposes either the communications may be interfered with and interrupted that the enemy may melt away by degrees from want and thus be compelled to retreat or the object may be to directly cut off the retreat with regard to the first we have to observe that a mere momentary interruption will seldom have any effect while armies are subsisted as they now are a certain time is requisite to produce an effect in this way in order that the losses of the enemy by frequent repetition may compensate in number for the small amount he suffers in each case one single enterprise against the enemy's flank which might have been a decisive stroke in those days when thousands of bread wagons traversed the lines of communication carrying out the systematized method then in force for subsisting the troops would hardly produce any effect now if ever so successful one convoy at most might be seized which would cause the enemy some partial damage but never compel him to retreat the consequence is that the enterprises of this description on a flank which have always been more in fashion in books than in real warfare now appear less of a practical nature than ever and we may safely say that there is no danger in this respect to any lines of communication but such as are very long and otherwise unfavourably circumstanced more especially by being exposed everywhere and at any moment to attacks from an insurgent population with respect to the cutting off of an enemy's retreat we must not be overconfident in this respect either of the consequences of threatening or closing the enemy's line of retreat as recent experience has shown that when troops are good and their leader resolute it is more difficult to make them prisoners than it is for them to cut their way through the force opposed to them the means of shortening and protecting long lines of communication are very limited the seizure of some fortresses adjacent to the position taken up by the army and on the roads leading to the rear or in the event of there being no fortresses in the country the construction of temporary defences at suitable points 
the kind treatment of the people of the country strict discipline on the military roads good police and active measures to improve the roads are the only means by which the evil may be diminished but it is one which can never be entirely removed furthermore what we said when treating of the question of subsistence with respect to the roads which the army should choose by preference applies also particularly to lines of communication the best lines of communication are roads leading through the most flourishing towns and the most important provinces they ought to be preferred even if considerably longer and in most cases they exercise an important influence on the definitive disposition of the army end of chapter sixteen chapter seventeen on country and ground irrespective quite of their influence as regards the means of subsistence of an army country and ground bear another most intimate and never-failing relation to the business of war which is their decisive influence on the battle both upon what concerns its course as well upon the preparation for it and the use to be made of it we now proceed to consider country and ground in this phrase that is the full meaning of the french expression terrain the way to make use of them is a subject which lies mostly within the province of tactics but the effects resulting from them appear in strategy a battle in the mountains is in its consequences as well as in itself quite a different thing from a battle on a level plain but until we have studied the distinction between offensive and defensive and examined the nature of each separately and fully we cannot enter upon the consideration of the principal features of the ground in their effects we must therefore for the present confine ourselves to an investigation of its general properties there are three properties through which the ground has an influence on action in war that is as presenting an obstacle to approach as an obstacle to an extensive view and as protection against the effect of firearms all other effects may be traced back to these three unquestionably this threefold influence of ground has a tendency to make warfare more diversified more complicated and more scientific for they are plainly three more quantities which enter into military combinations a completely level plain quite open at the same time that is a tract of country which cannot influence war at all has no existence except in relation to small bodies of troops and with respect to them only for the duration of some given moment of time when larger bodies are concerned and a longer duration of time accidents of ground mix themselves up with the action of such bodies and it is hardly possible in the case of a whole army to imagine any particular moment such as a battle when the ground would not make its influence felt this influence is therefore never in abeyance but it is certainly stronger or weaker according to the nature of the country if we keep in view the great mass of topographical phenomena we find that countries deviate from the idea of perfectly open level plains principally in three ways first by the form of the ground that is hills and valleys then by woods marshes and lakes as natural features and lastly by such changes as have been introduced by the hand of man through each of these three circumstances there is an increase in the influence of ground on the operations of war if we trace them up to a certain distance we have mountainous country a country little cultivated and covered with woods and marshes and the well cultivated the tendency in each case is to render war more complicated and connected with art the degree of influence which cultivation exercises is greater or less according to the nature of the cultivation the system pursued in flanders holstein and some other countries where the land is intersected in every direction with ditches dikes hedges and walls interspaced with many single dwellings and small woods has the greatest effect on war the conduct of war is therefore of the easiest kind in a level moderately cultivated country 
This, however, only holds good in a quite general sense, leaving entirely out of consideration the use which the defensive can make of obstacles of ground. Each of these three kinds of ground has an effect in its own way on movement, on the range of sight, and on the cover it affords. In a thickly wooded country, the obstacle to sight preponderates. In mountainous country, the difficulty of movement presents the greatest obstacle to an enemy. In countries very much cultivated, both these obstacles exist in a medium degree. As thick woods render great portions of ground in a certain manner impracticable for military movements, and as, besides the difficulty which they oppose to movement, they also obstruct the view, thereby preventing the use of means to clear a passage, the result is that they simplify the measures to be adopted on one side in proportion as they increase the difficulties with which the other side has to contend. Although it is difficult, practically, to concentrate forces for action in a wooded country, still a partition of forces does not take place to the same extent as it usually does in a mountainous country or in a country very much intersected with canals, rivers, etc. In other words, the partition of forces in such a country is more unavoidable, but not so great. In mountains, the obstacles to movement preponderate and take effect in two ways, because in some parts of the country it is quite impassable, and where it is practicable, we must move slower and with greater difficulty. On this account, the rapidity of all movements is much diminished in mountains, and all operations are mixed up with a larger quantity of the element of time. But the ground in mountains has also the special property peculiar to itself that one point commands another. We shall devote the following chapter to the discussion of the subject of commanding heights generally, and shall only here remark that it is this peculiarity which causes the great partition of forces in operations carried on amongst mountains, for particular points thus acquire importance from the influence they have upon other points in addition to any strategic value which they have in themselves. As we have elsewhere observed, each of these three kinds of ground, in proportion as its own special peculiarity has a tendency to an extreme, has in the same degree a tendency to lower the influence of the supreme command increasing in like manner the independent action of subordinates down to the private soldier. The greater the partition of any force, the less an undivided control is possible. So much the more are subordinates left to themselves. That is self-evident. Certainly when the partition of a force is greater, then through the diversity of action and greater scope in the use of means, the influence of intelligence must increase, and even the commander-in-chief may show his talents to advantage under such circumstances. But we must here repeat what has been said before, that in war the sum total of single results decides more than the form or method in which they are connected, and therefore if we push our present considerations to an extreme case, and suppose a whole army extended in a line of skirmishes so that each private soldier fights his own little battle, more will depend on the sum of single victories gained than on the form in which they are connected, for the benefit of good combinations can only follow from positive results, not from negative. Therefore, in such a case, the courage, the dexterity, and the spirit of individuals will prove decisive. It is only when two opposing armies are on par as regards military qualities, or that their peculiar properties hold the balance even, that the talent and judgment of the commander become again decisive. The consequence is that national armies and insurgent levies, etc., etc., in which at least in the individual the warlike spirit is highly excited, although they are not superior in skill and bravery, are still able to maintain a superiority by a great dispersion of their forces, favoured by a difficult country, and that they can only maintain themselves for a continuance upon that kind of system, because troops of this description are generally destitute of all the qualities and virtues 
which are indispensable when tolerably large numbers are required to act as a united body also in the nature of forces there are many gradations between one of these extremes and the other for the very circumstance of being engaged in the defence of its own country gives even a regular standing army something of the character of a national army and makes it more suited for a war waged by an army broken up into detachments now the more these qualifications and influences are wanting in an army the greater they are on the side of its opponent so much the more will it dread being split into fractions the more it will avoid a broken country but to avoid fighting in such a description of country is seldom a matter of choice we cannot choose a theatre of war like a piece of merchandise from amongst several patterns and thus we find generally that armies which from their nature fight with advantage in concentrated masses exhaust all their ingenuity in trying to carry out their system as far as possible in direct opposition to the nature of the country they must in consequence submit to other disadvantages such as scanty and difficult subsistence for the troops bad quarters and in the combat numerous attacks from all sides but the disadvantage of giving up their own special advantage would be greater these two tendencies in opposite directions the one to concentration the other to dispersion of forces prevail more or less as the nature of the troops engaged incline them more to one side or the other but however decided the tendency the one side cannot always remain with his forces concentrated neither can the other expect success by following his system of warfare in scattered bodies on all occasions the french were obliged to resort to partitioning their forces in spain and the spaniards whilst defending their country by means of an insurgent population were obliged to try the fate of great battles in the open field with part of their forces next to the connection which country and ground have with the general and especially with the political composition of the forces engaged the most important point is the relative proportion of the three arms in all countries which are difficult to traverse whether the obstacles are mountains forests or a peculiar cultivation a numerous cavalry is useless that is plain in itself it is just the same with artillery in wooded countries there will probably be a want of room to use it with effect of roads to transport it and of forage for the horses for this arm highly cultivated countries are less disadvantageous and least of all a mountainous country both no doubt afford cover against its fire and in that respect they are unfavourable to an arm which depends entirely on its fire both also often furnish means for the enemy's infantry to place the heavy artillery in jeopardy as infantry can pass anywhere but still in neither is there in general any want of space for the use of a numerous artillery and in mountainous countries it has this great advantage that its effects are prolonged and increased in consequence of the movements of the enemy being slower but it is undeniable that infantry has a decided advantage over every other arm in difficult country and that therefore in such a country its number may considerably exceed the usual proportion end of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen command of ground the word command has a charm in the art of war peculiar to itself and in fact to this element belongs a great part perhaps half the influence which ground exercises on the use of troops here many of these sacred relics of military erudition have their root as for instance commanding positions key positions strategic manoeuvres etc we shall take as clear a view of the subject as we can without prolixity and pass in review the true and the false reality and exaggeration every exertion of physical force if made upwards is more difficult than if it is made in the contrary direction open bracket downwards close bracket consequently it must be done so in fighting 
and there are three evident reasons why it is so. First, every height may be regarded as an obstacle to approach. Secondly, although the range is not perceptibly greater in shooting down from a height, yet all geometrical relations being taken into consideration, we have a better chance of hitting than in the opposite case. Thirdly, an elevation gives a better command of view. How all these advantages unite themselves together in battle, we are not concerned with here. We collect the sum total of the advantages which tactics derives from elevation of position, and combine them in one whole, which we regard as the first strategic advantage. But the first and last of these advantages that have been enumerated must appear once more as advantages of strategy itself, for we march and reconnoitre in strategy as well as in tactics. If, therefore, an elevated position is an obstacle to the approach of those on lower ground, that is the second, and the better command of view which this elevated position affords, is the third advantage which strategy may derive in this way. Of these elements is composed the power of dominating, overlooking, commanding. From these sources springs the sense of superiority and security which is felt standing on the brow of a hill and looking at the enemy below, and the feeling of weakness and apprehension which pervades the minds of those below. Perhaps the total impression made is at the same time stronger than it ought to be because the advantage of the higher ground strikes the senses more than the circumstances which modify that advantage. Perhaps the impression made surpasses that which truth warrants, in which case the effect of imagination must be regarded as a new element which exaggerates the effect produced by an elevation of ground. At the same time, the advantage of greater facility of movement is not absolute, and not always in favour of the site occupying the higher position. It is only so when his opponent wishes to attack him. It is not if the combatants are separated by a great valley, and it is actually in favour of the army on the lower ground if both wish to fight in the plain. Open bracket, Battle of Hohenfriedberg. Close bracket. Also, the power of overlooking or command of view has likewise great limitations, a wooded country in the valley below, and often the very masses of the mountains themselves on which we stand, obstruct the vision. Countless are the cases in which we might seek in vain on the spot for those advantages of an elevated position which a map would lead us to expect, and we might often be led to think we had only involved ourselves in all kinds of disadvantages the very opposite of the advantages which we counted upon, but these limitations and conditions do not abrogate or destroy the superiority which the more elevated position confers, both on the defensive and offensive. We shall point out in a few words how this is the case with each. Out of the three strategic advantages of the more elevated ground, the greater tactical strength, the more difficult approach, and the better view, the first two are of such a nature that they really belong to the defensive only, for it is only in holding firmly to a position that we can make use of them, whilst the other side open bracket, offensive, close bracket, in moving, cannot remove them and take them with him. But the third advantage can be made use of by the offensive just as well as by the defensive. From this it follows that the more elevated ground is highly important to the defensive, and as it can only be maintained in a defensive way in mountainous countries, therefore it would seem to follow as a consequence that the defensive has an important advantage in mountain positions. How is it that, through other circumstances, this is not so in reality, we shall show in the chapter on the defence of mountains. We must first of all make a distinction, if the question relates merely to commanding ground at one single point, as, for example, a position for an army. In such case, the strategic advantages rather merge in the tactical one of a battle fought under advantageous circumstances. 
but if now we imagine a considerable tract of country suppose a whole province as a regular slope like the declivity of a general watershed so that we can make several marches and always hold the upper ground then the strategic advantage becomes greater because we can now use the advantage of the more elevated ground not only in the combination of our forces with each other for one particular combat but also in the combination of several combats with one another thus it is with the defensive as regards the offensive it enjoys to a certain extent the same advantages as the defensive from the more elevated ground for this reason that the strategic attack is not confined to one act like the tactical the strategic advance is not the continuous movement of a piece of wheel work it is made in single marches with a longer or shorter interval between them and at each halting point the assailant is just as much acting on the defensive as his adversary through the advantage of a better view of the surrounding country an elevated position confers in certain measure on the offensive as well as the defensive a power of action which we must not omit to notice it is the facility of operating with separate masses for each portion of a force separately derives the same advantages which the whole derives from this more elevated position by this a separate corps let it be strong or weak in numbers is stronger than it would otherwise be and we can venture to take up a position with less danger than we could if it had not that particular property of being on an elevation the advantages which are to be derived from such separate bodies of troops is a subject for another place if the possession of more elevated ground is combined with other geographical advantages which are in our favour if the enemy finds himself cramped in his movements from other causes as for instance by the proximity of a large river such disadvantages of his position may prove quite decisive and he may feel that he cannot too soon relieve himself from such a position no army can maintain itself in the valley of a great river if it is not in possession of the heights on each side by which the valley is formed the possession of elevated ground may therefore become virtually command and we can by no means deny that this idea represents a reality but nevertheless the expressions commanding ground sheltering position key of the country in so far as they are founded on the nature of heights and descents are hollow shells without any sound kernel these imposing elements of theory have been chiefly resorted to in order to give a flavour to the seeming commonplace of military combinations they have become the darling themes of learned soldiers the magical wands of adepts in strategy and neither the emptiness of these fanciful conceits nor the frequent contradictions which have been given to them by the results of experience have sufficed to convince authors and those who read their books that with such phraseology they are drawing water in the leaky vessel of the danaides the conditions have been mistaken for the thing itself the instrument for the hand the occupation of such and such a position or space of ground has been looked upon as an exercise of power like a thrust or a cut the ground or position itself as a substantive quantity whereas the one is like the lifting of the arm the other is nothing but the lifeless instrument a mere property which can only realise itself upon an object a mere sign of plus or minus which wants the figures or quantities this cut and thrust this object this quantity is a victorious battle it alone really counts with it only can we reckon and we must always have it in view as well in giving a critical judgment in literature as in real action in the field consequently if nothing but the number and value of victorious combats decides in war it is plain that the comparative value of the opposing armies and the ability of their respective leaders 
again rank as the first points for consideration and that the part which the influence of ground plays can only be one of an inferior grade end of chapter eighteen end of book five recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia